everyone. Sorry for being late. I feel like I will be better here because I just preached in Mandarin the first time. <laughs> in the early parts of this chapter, we read that Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, and Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with her very expensive ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This was a rather personal, private encounter that Mary had with Jesus. Now, shifting to this part of the chapter, we see the more public, grandiose, yet humble entry of Jesus on a donkey's cult. Jesus' triumphant entry to Jerusalem was captured in all four Gospels. The difference in account in John's Gospel reveals to us two things that were not captured in Matthew, Mark, nor Luke's version of this story. Firstly, that there was a great crowd in verse 12. And secondly, in verse 17, the crowd witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What would your response be if you were part of this large crowd? Perhaps it is apprehension mixed with disbelief. Who is this Jesus that raised Lazarus from the dead? Perhaps it is welcome and praise. We will finally be liberated from the Romans. This Jesus has come to deliver us. Perhaps it is having a fervent heart and spreading the good news to others. Perhaps even feeling envious or jealous where we are upset that others are following Jesus and not us. We see the crowd and the Pharisees' response later in this chapter at verses 17 to 19. But let's follow John's account of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We first see from the people a desire to embrace Jesus and his presence. In verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. This was symbolic of the return march of a victorious ruler after war. Combining this account of Jesus' triumphant entry to that of the other three gospels, we know that Jesus entered Jerusalem from a few centuries, sorry, Jesus entered Jerusalem through Bethanage near the Mount of Olives. The apocalyptic literature from a few centuries earlier, during the Maccabean era, if you really must know, mentions that palms are in association with the coming of the M Messiah, the promised king who from the Mount of Olives saves God's people. Secondly, we see from the people an outcry in wanting Jesus to save. Despite the slight differences in narrative of the gospel accounts of this particular story, the following statements are common among all four. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna, which originally meant save we pray, but later became an exclamation of praise at present, symbolized a cry from the people for Jesus to save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These words were sung in Psalm 118 as a welcome to pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem. Jesus' entry here is almost a dream come true for the crowd. They now have a king and a king who saves. 
Lastly, we see from the people a declaration that Jesus is King of Israel. The key part that brings together the first two points, people's desire to embrace Jesus and people's outcry for a savior only came fully together when we see the declaration of Jesus as King of Israel. Even earlier in the book of John, we read in chapter six, verse 15, that the crowd wanted to make Jesus king. The people were in full anticipation that Jesus came to deliver the Jews from Roman oppression and to establish peace. But this was not what God had in mind. We read on and see a huge contrast towards Jesus' response in this grandiose entry. We read in verse 14 that Jesus found a donkey's colt and sat on it. The story of which Jesus found this donkey was described in more depth in the other gospels. We know that Jesus sent two disciples to go into the village in front of them and to find a donkey cult and send it back to him. You think perhaps he should have found a horse to ride on or made some use of some other symbolic nature of power for his grand entry. But contrasting to this, but contrasting to the people's great expectation, grand anticipation, grandiose entry, we see that Jesus was painting the picture with a completely different color palette. John tells us that the large crowd missed the point. It reads, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So what point did they miss? We know from earlier chapters that Jesus came to do the works of his father. He came to save, to perform signs and wonders, but he did not come, he did not want to become king. He knew that the people had great expectations for him, that the kingdom was about to be set up and Jesus was to sit on the throne of David. Yet they missed the point of Jesus as an everlasting king and a king who came to serve and to save not like any of the previous kings Israel has had. So when John says they realized that these things had happened, had, written, had been written about him, it is similar to when we heard the story of Jesus clearing out the temple, where the disciples then remembered that he had said this. In John chapter two, verse 22, we read, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples in John chapter two and the crowd in this chapter both thought they were honoring Jesus, and they were. But they did not really understand the true meaning of what was happening, nor even what they were saying. They failed to see the significance and importance of both Jesus' acts of clearing out the temple and Jesus' current act of entering into Jerusalem. They needed to see that Jesus' entry to Jerusalem symbolizes a much greater entrance, an entrance into this world, performing all the signs and wonders, overcoming all previous kings' failures and incapabilities. Bringing it back to us and how this passage is applicable to us today, can we miss the point of what Jesus did? If so, how? Firstly, we can forget that Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. 
John's use of the Old Testament helps us interpret this passage. In Zephaniah 3.16, we read, Do not be afraid on that day. They will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. While the balance of the quote is cited in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. These are reassurances of God's presence in Jerusalem to work on behalf of the people. The triumphant king is gentle and riding on a donkey. This gentle and humble king is not a man of chariots and war horses, swords and bows, but one who will bring peace to all nations. His gift is a gift of life not conquest. By riding on a donkey, Jesus connects with a rich picture of the Messianic king, debunking the image of him being the victorious political king, but highlighting his identity as a humble, servant-hearted king. So what can we take away from today's passage? Overall, we call Jesus our king and savior because we know the significance of this story. We can see straight away without needing to realize and remember. I want to bring you back into the mindsets of the crowd. Why do you think the disciples in John 2, when Jesus was clearing out the temple, or the crowd here, were following Jesus? We see from today's passage that the crowd was there because they wanted to see who this Jesus person is. This Jesus who performed all the miracles, signs and wonders, and raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowd would have thought, if he could raise Lazarus from the dead, surely he could deliver the people from the Romans and deliver Israel. John seems to be pointing to us two predicaments in which believers can fall in. Firstly, we are so focused on what Jesus can do for them in terms of benefits, gains, prosperity, they fail to see the greater purpose of Jesus' entry into this world. And secondly, from John 4, we can also see that people can miss, or rather not be focused enough, on what only Jesus can do for us. In John chapter 4, we read of the story where Jesus has a chat with a Samaritan woman by the well. The conversation went something like this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In many ways, our faith should only be based on what only Christ can do for us. Christ saves, Christ forgives, Christ cleanses, Christ restores, Christ transforms. Jesus came to fulfill God's promise in sending one of David's descendants to reign on his throne, who would rule in absolute righteousness and justice, crushing all opposition under his feet. Yet the second aspect of this king is missed in the crowd's reaction towards Jesus' entry. That is, Jesus did not want to become a king. He wanted to become a suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people, who would deliver them from God's judgment and make right our relationship with God. 
So I have two reflection points for us today. Firstly, what is your faith based on? Is it based on what Jesus can do for you? Or is it based on who Jesus is? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, we read that if we are building our faith on sand, our faith will be shaken and perhaps even destroyed. Following Jesus should be focusing on what only Christ can do and focusing on Christ's character, attributes, and holiness. If you think Jesus will grant you financial prosperity, good health, and other temporal benefits, your faith is built on sand. But think about what if you contract a serious illness? What if you suffer a severe financial loss? What if your marriage isn't the storybook ideal romance that you thought he would give you? What if your children don't follow the Lord or if they turn against you? Christ has given us so much more. God has shown us that despite, despite all of the suffering and sin we see in this world, we still have Christ. Christ has borne the price. We have citizenship in heaven. We are children of God. I pray that through today's passage, we examine our hearts and faith. I pray that each of us can be built up by his word and build our faith on solid rock. As it is written, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. As we also declare Jesus as the king of our heart, we are following Jesus for who he is. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. When we have read in Psalm, in Zechariah, in Zephaniah, these are all great evidence as to who this prophecy fulfilling Jesus is. In the book of John, we see the many signs and wonders Jesus has performed in this book. These signs testify to who God is and authenticate his ministry. In chapter two, turning water into wine, Jesus is the Messiah who, inaug who inaugurates the new covenant order and brings joy. In the same chapter where he cleans the temple, Jesus is the suffering servant who builds the new temple of the church through his death and resurrection. In chapter four, healing the nobleman's son, Jesus is the son who grants life by the word of his power. In chapter five, healing the lame man, Jesus is the son of God who renders people spiritually whole. In chapter six, feeding the multitude, Jesus is the bread of life who is sovereign over the gift of eternal life. In chapter nine, healing the blind man, Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the spiritually blind. And in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus is the son of God who rules over death and gives life to the spiritually dead. Jesus came to save. I was recently reminded of the story of Daniel 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a pit of fire. In Daniel 3, they made this amazing statement of faith and faithfulness, but God doesn't respond to their faith by airlifting them out of the fire. God's response, however, was to be present with them in the middle of the mess. We often hear the psalmist cry out, how long, O Lord, will you, forget, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? 
When we are faced with suffering, let us be reminded that Christ is with us. He has suffered, and that is where we can find peace and encouragement. Our suffering might be the products of the broken world, a spiritual enemy bent on our destruction, or even God in his wisdom saying no. But we know we can trust God's love. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, God promises never to leave us alone and Psalm 23 verse four confirms this. My second reflection point follows on from the first. As we reflect on the first question and do a pulse check on the positions of our heart, let us also reflect on whether there are any areas of our lives, be it work, finances, relationships, goals, how we use our time, how we use our resources, where Jesus is not our king. What specific, what specific things do we need to do to yield those areas to God? These might sound simple, talking to Jesus, asking him for guidance. It might be speaking to your mentor or someone that you look up to. It might be setting new goals for this year and practicing being consistent with one small thing. It might be letting your friends know what your struggles are and bringing encouragement and accountability with them. But let us place God at the center of our heart and redirect our energy, our time, our resources and efforts in meeting our King daily, yielding to him our burdens and worshiping him in both thought and action. Amen.